for me, my ventures have been oftentimes years of struggle, self-doubt, fear, uncertainty. Uh, but then I also think the ultimate joy and strength comes from overcoming that, from persevering and doing that together with our teams. I really strive for that perspective in a lot of our interviews on Lead the Team because I think people, that that's ultimately how you help people is you show your, your vulnerability. And, you, and we, uh, when I went through coaching training years ago, my mentor said, Ben, you know, we all coach from our own wounds. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team. Welcome back. Hang on to your hats. We've got a fun one coming your way today with Godard Abel, who is the five times B2B SaaS entrepreneur and co-founder and CEO of G2, which is the world's largest and most trusted software marketplace, which he co-founded back in 2012. Now, G2, in case you're not familiar with it, is used by 80 million people annually with over 2 million authentic peer reviews, and it's valued at $1.1 billion today, and they're a global team of 700 people. Now, back to Godard, he also serves as executive chairman of 3Kit, a leading 3D visualization technology company, and Logic.io, a next-generation configuration technology. And previously, he was founder and CEO of Steelbrick, which has been acquired by Salesforce, and also previously co-founded Big Machines, where he served as CEO and built it into a leading software-as-a-service provider, which was acquired back by Oracle in 2013. Oh, my gosh. What an intro. Yeah, thanks for the kind intro, Ben. Yeah, y'all, let's just say Goodhart's been a little bit busy. Uh, <laughs> and so doing big things. But let's start with the simple question. What drives you? I think the desire to build and create. And I do remember when I was a kid, I was growing up in Germany and went to a Waldorf school. And they really believed in natural play. And so I think for toys, I just had wood blocks. And I remember, you know, I love building towers. And my goal was always to build a tower taller than my dad before he would get home from work. And uh, so I just love the you know, idea of building, creating. And I think that's really what entrepreneurship is. I think if I were an artist, the artwork would be the company. And so I get joy out of you know, building. And, and sometimes a tower does collapse and, and you got to start over and all the blocks back together, but I just love that process of building and, and creating something. Wow. What a cool story. Thanks for sharing that. I'm familiar with Waldorf. We we sent our daughter to a uh, Montessori school here in Charleston. And while it's not maybe as open free play as, as a Waldorf, which I think is really cool, she did get to sort of uh, march to the beat of her own drum at, as a kid. And it's still even today, uh, I like I notice when she has no schedule time, mm. she creates things. She will get all kinds of different boxes and board, cardboard and stuff and tape and just start making stuff, even at 12. 
And I love the fact that you shared that's what she gravitated towards the kid. And I guess it's played out at least five times as an adult in five different businesses where you're still building that tower. Yes. Now, I think it is a great uh, creative expression. And uh, yeah, and no, I'm glad, glad, glad your daughter's on her way to being a, a wonderful creator. There, there you go. Um, I will relay that message to her today too. She will get a real kick out of that. In fact, she just made a, a uh, she got really interested in vending machines. Wow. And so she started, she had all these boxes and she made these, um, a fairly large vending machine and she made stickers that would come out of this thing. And her neighbor started doing it with or our neighbor started making one with pet treats after that for her dog. So you can see we're up to big things in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, she's gonna be, <laughs> it sounds like she's going to be a next next generation entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, it could be. It could be. Now, for you, uh, you know, I, I got to ask you about a documentary that that you were just featured in. And so, for the listeners, Godar, which is featured in a documentary called "Spiraling Up," spotlighting startup founders on their paths to become unicorns. And it's brought, it was, it was, I guess, produced by HubSpot and LinkedIn. And so I, I, I find this thing in our research and I go to it and I expect it to be sort of a chest pounding, I'm conquering the world documentary. And let's just say Godard is, he doesn't go that way in his. Uh, I'm getting a chill talking about it. It's very vulnerable. Uh, you don't put on the glitz and glam of a co-founder CEO and you really let us into your world. Um, what inspired you to go that direction on this documentary? Uh, well, one, it felt natural, you know, to share also all my challenges being an entrepreneur. And I did mention in the beginning, I love being a builder, a creator. And I do think for me, you know, while ultimately the works, the companies came out successful, I think there was always a lot of fear, anxiety, self-doubt along the way. Mm. And so I enjoy, you know, sharing my own genuine experience and also hopefully it can help and inspire some other entrepreneurs because also most entrepreneur friends I have, we almost all struggle. You know, I think you hear like the Mark Zuckerberg story where apparently he launched Facebook and everyone at Harvard was using it overnight. And at least then for a few years, he had nothing but up until the right success. And I think that's like one in a billion. You know, I think for me, my ventures have been oftentimes years of struggle, self-doubt, fear, uncertainty. Uh, but then I also think the ultimate joy and strength comes from overcoming that, from persevering mm-hmm. and doing that together with our team. So I thought it would be you know, hopefully helpful to to share that more authentic story. Uh, because I think most great, you know, endeavors in life, they do involve struggle, they involve fear, they involve uncertainty and uncertainty and doubt. And that's part of the certainly my experience as a human, and I think almost all of us. So mm. I thought it would be enjoyable to share it. And I do have to say Andrew Morgan, the filmmaker, the film producer, he and his team, they followed me around for about three days. And I also didn't see the, you know, the final cut until they we we launched it together last Tuesday and they just did an amazing job. You know, I think also telling the story. And I'd never really seen filmmaking from inside like that, you know, but you realize, wow, three days of work to come up with 16 good minutes. Uh and they did the yeah. I thought it was a good job telling the story where even my kids and they're all teenagers and 
we were talking at the beginning, you have a daughter, she's 12, she might not be there yet, but you know, usually teenagers, it's hard to impress them as a parent and they really enjoyed yes. them. They enjoyed so it. That, that to me was the ultimate validation that, that even my kids liked it. And they're like, Oh wow, dad, you are doing some cool things. Well, yeah, dad. Okay. He, yeah. He's more than just the working guy. There's a little more to him. Yeah. I, I think you're really, I just really surprised me because that's not what, um, you, you think about when you say, Hey, you know, you're a $1.1 billion valuation and he looks like you're just hitting home run after home run here. And Hey, you're like, no, this video is not about that. It's about really well, what I felt like was seeing someone talk about what success looks like on the inside and, and how you get there and, uh, how, how you be, how can, how you can be in the world from that. And I think you're, and, and I, and I really strive for that perspective in a lot of our interviews on lead the team, because I think people that that's ultimately how you help people is you show your, your vulnerability. And, you, and we, uh, when, when I went through coaching training years ago, my mentor said, Ben, you know, we all coached from our own wounds. Mm. And I felt like you were, you were sharing some of that through that experience. And you're going to help a lot of people because you were you were helping us through your own wounds there. Yeah, thank you. And I do. And part of what I talk about documentary, I have been working with coaches now, you know, for the last 15 years. And actually my coach, Sue Heilbrunner, she's also featured in the video. I saw that. And, uh, and I have found that to be very helpful. And I do think yeah, good coaches, as you said, you know, they, they kind of coach from their own wounds, but they're, they're also willing to be vulnerable and they help you just kind of realize and accept you know, that feeling, I think we all have still, you know, we're, that we are somehow inadequate. I know I still have that feeling every day, even when, you know, outside in. And I also consciously, I build a brand as a successful entrepreneur. I enjoy that. It helps my business, but it doesn't mean that day to day, I don't still have a lot of, you know, doubt, anxiety. And, uh, but then, yeah, hopefully showing people how you can accept that and, you know, use it as some ways as fuel to create, uh, yeah, I think that uh, hopefully can can help many people you know, have more impact from their own lives. Yes. So go there for a minute and tell us about Jared. Mm. Yes. And my coach, Sue, talked about Jared. And uh, one of the things my coach, Sue, she's a conscious leadership coach, but she also worked with my whole leadership team. And we actually did a leadership offsite here in Boulder. And she had us do what she calls persona play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because we all adopt different personas. And for me, sometimes it could also be the brash, you know, successful entrepreneur. Uh, but then, you know, I also have this persona, Jared, that one of my team members, I think it was actually Brittany. She's our brilliant, uh, you know, head of our our new businesses. And I think she just kind of named me because I will go what my coach calls blow the line, where I get angry and righteous mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just convinced I'm right and very attached to my idea. And then, you know, sometimes, frankly, the, the bad side of Jared, as Sue said, Jared can be a real jerk, you know, where sometimes also then, because I'm so convinced, Jared's so convinced his idea is right that he'll even belittle people and, you know, just to like get his way. And, uh, but it was really helpful. Brittany is like, oh, you're Jared. And uh, just <laughs> naming that persona. And what I love about it, you know, she's also, you know, much earlier in her career, but that she also had the courage to do that. and. Uh, you know, and it's stuck. So now I can be reminded, you know, when well, I'm being a 
my team can just say, oh, wow, there's Jared. And it reminds me, oh, whoa. He's kicking butt and taking names. Okay. I think I, we see little Jared coming out. Yeah. But but sometimes he also, the problem with Jared is he shuts people down. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that can be a good reminder for my team because I think what I've learned from my coach, if you want to co-create, you know, being that bombastic entrepreneur that has all the answers, honestly, is the opposite of helpful mm. because then you shut down your team. You know, we have a like that meeting, there were eight of us meeting. And obviously, I think, you know, what I'm trying to shift to is more co-creation. And if I can let all eight of us create together, it's going to be much more powerful than, you know, even if I have the best ideas in the world than just me you know, kind of dictating. And so that's one of the the learnings from the coaching and, you know, but now I think it's helpful that people can name Jared, including myself. And then hopefully I can shift more quickly back to going what my coach would call above the line back to co-creation and presence, you know, versus to kind of righteous, righteous attachment to to your own idea. So when in your journey, so it, it looks looking at your journey, you hit a lot of home runs her grand slaps really is selling your company, creating them, selling them on to other organizations, doing the same thing. When in your journey was the moment where you realized the way I've been operating, it looks like it's delivering a lot of external wins, but I'm not like, I don't feel good internally. I'm, I'm having, you know, whether it's mental health, you know, issues or, or whatever it happens to be when, I, how did I'm, I'm really curious about, about that moment of inflection of how you realized it just wasn't really working, even though it was working in so many other ways. Yeah, and I think it took me about eight years. Hmm. And you know, when I was building my first company, Big Machines, which ultimately was acquired by Oracle, ultimately success, but it was so many years of struggle. And I remember three years in, you know, we were literally almost bankrupt. And, you know, my first year I'd raised $20 million. And, you know, when I started, I was like 27, 28, just fueled by adrenaline. And like a lot of young entrepreneurs, I thought, wow, within one year, I'm going to change the world, take this company public, right? I'm invincible. And that was all kind of ego attachment. But then I got very humbled, you know, because three years in, I was almost literally almost bankrupt and had to cut the people, the the, the company down from 70 to 20 people. And I honestly didn't know if we were going to survive. Luckily, my co-founder and I persevered. And and in hindsight, we were also ahead of the technology curve. You know, we were building cloud software to help manufacture sell products online way back in 2000. And there was that dot-com boom. And for a year, all the investors, everyone thought internet was going to change the world overnight. And then we learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. It was actually much slower change. Mm-hmm. And so our business was ahead of the curve. We were burning too much money. So it was a really hard reset. And also for me, emotionally, all those years, I just felt like I was failing. I think for six years in a row, I missed my sales plan every quarter. So oh, it was, gosh. yeah, it was extremely humbling. Yeah. And then 2007, 2008, we just suddenly started having success because all of a sudden cloud software became popular. We partnered with salesforce.com as well as with Oracle and they really popularized cloud software. And all of a sudden as their partner, we started having business success. And, uh, you know, but I still like, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't happy. I wasn't healthy on the inside. Because, you know, and frankly, I was about 30 pounds heavier because I was stuffing my anxiety oftentimes at night. You know, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I was just so stressed and the feeling of stress couldn't go away. And so I, you know, solve, try to solve that by eating too much, drinking too much late at night. And then I wouldn't go to bed. I'd just be working on my laptop, kind of falling asleep on it. It's like midnight. You know, so I just wasn't taking care of myself in any way. And I didn't feel good. And I did have some short highs when we would start winning. And, you know, you had that sales kickoff, we crushed our numbers, that would feel great. But 
it wouldn't last. And on the inside, mm-hmm. I was you know, feeling somehow incomplete. And then luckily at that time, I joined a YPO forum. And YPO, it's Young Presence Organization, mm-hmm. wonderful organization. I recommend it to all entrepreneurs. So it really helped change my life. And I joined a forum, which I didn't know it at the time. And honestly, I didn't really want to. So I'm like, oh, I'm so busy and you know, meet four hours once a month. I'm like, that's too much time. I don't have time. But I met this peer group of you know, entrepreneurs. And a lot of them were more seasoned than I was. They had more experience. And I remember one of them, Jordan Dorfman, like as I was thinking about joining, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this. And he just put his hand on my shoulder and he's like, Godard, we can help you. And uh, I honestly had no idea what he meant, but I was like, but I knew I wasn't happy. So I'm like, hey, why not give it a go? And then luckily for me, they had this very authentic group. They'd been working on conscious leadership mm-hmm. and they started challenging my mindset and also introduced me to a coach, Jim Dethmer, who, you know, conscious leadership guru and, you know, who really kind of put me on the way to growing as a human and and changing my perspective on the world. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So what do those meetings go like with these other CEOs? I, I know in your documentary, you're getting, uh, you know, some feedback, or you're in a conversation with the CEO of, I believe, Celestial Seasoning. Yes, that was my, he was the, the founder of that, and oh, okay. And later, he was on the the board also of Whole Foods, and he's just a remarkable man. He really, uh, the entrepreneur, and and much more seasoned than I am, but he's in my current forum, and but he's one of the yeah, leaders I can I can now learn from. So, so you come in there. And you sit down with these other leaders and what's, what's happened in those, in those meetings that has been so helpful for you? Well, parties sometimes, honestly, they just kind of laugh at you, <laughs> you know, cause okay. been- tell me, give me more than that. That sounds good though. Well, a good start. And I think sometimes and we always start with an update, you know, each member of the forum and usually it's about eight people and we start with like a five minute update and it's supposed to have, you know, mm-hmm. three chapters where you tell, what's going on in your business life. But I think equally we spend time on what's going on with your family life hmm. and what's going on with you as an individual. And, uh, you know, but I think sometimes I would chuckle because I think at the beginning I was coming at it very much from like a victim consciousness, I'll call it, you know, where I'm like, Oh, my board there, you know, my board is so mean. They don't understand me. They don't understand my business. They're mm-hmm. giving me advice. You know, my wife doesn't love me enough. And, you know, she's not giving me all the affection I want and my kids, they won't listen to me. You know, like that was probably a lot of my victim consciousness, like the world mm-hmm. is happening to me. And then, but I think having, you know, and then sometimes you kind of just need someone to chuckle at you and be like, whoa, like, you know, and then help you like reframe your perspective. Yeah. And I think that's something also this forum and the coaches have talked about kind of shifting from a to me mindset where like the world is happening to me and I'm a victim, you know, of my bad employees, my ununderstanding investors, my spouse that doesn't love me enough to like, hey, buy me. How am I creating this reality? Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful mental shift. But I think you also need some people that are willing to call BS on you, you know, rather than like oftentimes being a good friend. Traditionally, could be defined as just listening to you, like, oh, Ben, I understand all your problems. And yes, the world is so hard and I feel your pain. And that's good to show empathy. But then also, mm-hmm. I think 
being able to challenge someone and being like, Hey Ben, I hear you, but your world's actually pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Like you have a beautiful bow tie, beautiful wife, (laughs) beautiful daughter, you're living in Charleston. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, Hey, snap out of it. Right. And you can always, yeah, it's more looking at it glass half full versus glass half empty. But I think that mindset shift and Ben, like, Hey, you can create your own world. You can create your own reality. Um, and I think if you can shift to that mindset and I don't do it all the time. And my coaches also say that's normal. Like you shift back to below the line to kind of this victim state or this controlling state. But then if you can remind yourself, Oh, wow, I can shift back, you know, to a creative state, then, uh, you know, I find overall you can have much more, much more joy in life and hopefully much more uh, positive impact. Yeah, I love that. It's a great reminder. We all fluctuate, but we got to get back to at some point what we can actually do, what we can control and find a little gratitude, like you say. Exactly. Find some gratitude for the bow tie, even when you forget you're wearing it, <laughs> so exactly. to speak. Now we all have good things in our lives, right? And uh, if we can appreciate those and then, yeah, say, hey, how can I build on this? Build on it together with the people around me. Then well, I I do think life, you know, becomes much more happier. And I think you can be much more creative. Well, this, this, is, the, this is the part two to the documentary that I didn't get. And I, I'm wondering if you can go there with me. Godard has this amazing transformation that the inner journey and here you are in a big valuation but i sense that you're you mentioned hey we got another 10 years of work here to do this company at least uh what are you how are you thinking about instilling all this that you've you you see the power in, in your own life and i suspect there's a piece of i would like to instill it in my organization. Uh, so it impacts their 700 lives plus their families. So maybe you're looking at and maybe, you know, several thousand people ultimately that will be impacted by this. Um, how, how are you processing that uh, as a leader? Yeah. I think what I've done differently at this company that I'd never done in my prior companies before is also having, I've had my coach Sue work with my whole senior leadership team. Okay. And- I have about seven or eight direct reports. So she not just coaches me as an individual, but she coaches the whole team. And I do believe, you know, if I can have all of my leaders also shift to being more conscious beings, more conscious leaders, that obviously that, that cascades down. And, and now we've actually, we've added second coaches, third coaches. So then anyone at G2 that's exposed to this, that gets curious, you know, they can have their own coaching. And I think also one of the things I've learned from Sue is you can only be coached if you want to be coached. This is not the kind of thing I can impose on somebody. You know what I mean? Even my leadership. And if I'm like, Ben, you will be conscious. You know, it becomes like mantra dogma, Mm -hmm. which I think is repulsive naturally to humans, right? Nobody wants like a a beat down of like, here's my philosophy and you will adopt it. You know, but hopefully if I can model it, other leaders model it, and then people get curious about it. And I've seen that happening. Where people are like, oh, wow, like, and even people I've worked with for a long time, they're like, oh, you seem a little bit more happy. You seem to be having more joy. And yes. by the way, you seem to be having as much, if not more success. Then I think people naturally get curious to see, oh, wow, mm-hmm. you know, what have you learned? And what of this might I apply to my own life? And I think that's kind of naturally starting to happen. And so, as you said, hopefully that 
it comes to all of our team members, their families. And then even ideally it shows up in our products, you know, for our users and our customers. We mentioned that was my next question. Yeah. And hopefully at some okay. point the product becomes because we're creating from a more better, more natural state, right? Hopefully even our users can someday feel it. And and I will say one of the values of G2 also that's related to this is authenticity. And yeah, you know, this is true for software reviews, right? We want, and that's been a challenge with online review sites in general. You know, you hear all these horror stories about fake reviews on Yelp, fake reviews. I was going to ask you about that piece too. Okay, yeah, two million authentic reviews. What is an authentic review? Yeah, and uh, and now I think it's almost two point four million. Keeps growing. Uh, <laughs> but our goal is by authentic, we mean it's a real human first of all. Yeah, you know, because that's also one problem on the internet in general, right? Is this a bot? Is this fake, or is it a real human writing it? So you know, typically we'll require you to sign up as a reviewer, Ben, with your LinkedIn profile. And for almost all of us, at least in tech and software, that's our professional credential, right? So we can validate, hey, this really like is. It. We can see also, you know, real facts about you. What industry are you in? What kind of company do you work for? All of which, you know, is important context for the review. Like, can I trust you? And I think at the end of the day, right, the only thing we do trust as humans is peers, is each other. You know, there is so much bad content out there on the internet or even with AI now, right? Is it hallucinating? Is it real? And so it's also very being authentic and being trusted. And we're not perfect at it, you know, because we do see fraudulent review attempts every day. We actually reject about 30% of reviews that are submitted because either we suspect fraud or the quality is just poor. And so, you know, providing authentic software advice based on authentic peer review is also very core. You know, to our mission as a company. And so, you know, I think in that sense, it's all interrelated. And like I said, ultimately, hopefully this conscious mindset shows up in our products. So our products are more authentic, more trusted, and add more value to the user. So, you know, like I said, hopefully wow. it shows up in our product as well and, and our users feel it. I love it. And it's so in alignment with how we started this thing out with authenticity. And we were talking about it. And it's interesting, it's like in a world of AI, where can you go to actually validate this is a real person in a real industry and understand their perspective? And I think right now, tying it back to LinkedIn makes so much sense because they seem to be, LinkedIn is not perfect, uh, but it is a great mechanism right now to really understand people and see what's going on in their profession and validate that they're a real person. And you can right. tie reviews back to it. You know, I've been people, re, and I think it goes all the way down to looking at reviews and people's recommendations on their LinkedIn profile. See who those people are that recommended them and, and the work they did. Sure. And I do think LinkedIn has probably done a better job than the more consumer, you know, Facebook, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think of keeping it real. And they have the same challenge. I know they have teams always, because people do try to create fake LinkedIn profiles, right? It happens. Um, and I think even now you might have seen us have a feature, and I've done it, where you can tie it to your government ID even. Yes. You know, your profile. And I've done that because I do want you know, people to trust, be able to trust my professional virtual profile. Yeah. And so I think they're uh I think they're they're doing a good job of that. And I do think, you know, their site also their businesses continue to do well. I think because they do have, you know, at least for work networking, professional networking, I do think they've created, you know, the gold standard of of trust. I hope they keep going down that road. I think they're on to something with that. Yeah, no, me too. I hope they keep going down that road. 
All right. So what's the story of the red Corvette? Mm. And that's from my one of my best friends growing up, uh, Joe Nacido, or actually his full name, Joseph Nacido Jr. And uh, he was one of my best friends in high school. I was growing up in Pittsburgh or a suburb of Pittsburgh called Swickley. And uh, actually, together with Joe, I created my first ever business. And uh, I think we were 16 years old. We just started driving. And uh, we also decided we wanted to make some extra money. And actually, I think it was Joe's idea because his dad always had nice cars. And his Mm -hmm. dad would take them to car detailing services that would charge like 150 bucks a car. You know, and that was a lot of money, especially back in those days. I think this was like 1987. Uh. And uh, so he and I decided, oh, we could we could do this ourselves. But the official car detailing shops, they obviously had like they had that they had overhead, right? They had like garages and things. And we're like, oh, we can just do this like door to door. He and I were like, we know how to wash a car. And so we just went to like uh I think it was Costco, bought you know, bought all the supplies, like uh, you know, armor all wax and all the all the stuff you needed to detail a car. And then we're like, hey, we'll just we just uh, printed up. We just like, hey, we'll just do direct marketing. And we had our prom at that time. And his dad let him take his shiny new red Corvette to the prom. And we had to rent tuxedos anyway, you know, to take oh, okay. to the prom. And then yeah. we just, wow, this would be the perfect marketing for, we called it Ultimate Car Care. Nice. Okay. And, yes, we stood in our prom tuxedos next to his dad's shiny red Corvette, uh, took a picture of it. And obviously, <laughs> this was all, there was no digital photography, right? This was a real picture. Yeah. Did it out and like went to the print copy shop, you know, and printed oh. out, I don't know, like a thousand flyers. And then we literally went mailbox to mailbox and just distributed these flyers. Mm-hmm. And one funny part of the story, we then actually got notice from the U.S. Postal Service. And I didn't know this, but it's actually illegal to distribute to mailboxes without going through the Postal Service. Really? Yes. All these kids' dreams have just gone up in flames now. Yeah, and I guess you have businesses. to... Yeah, you're not allowed to. I, I didn't know this. I think they obviously they want you to go to don't you, you know, use a stamp. post office and then pay them to distribute yes. your flyers. And we're like, we thought the mailbox was like, you know, it's owned by the owner of the house, but apparently the, the U.S. Postal Service has a kind of exclusive rights to put things in the mailboxes. So anyway, but we they just gave us a warning letter. You know, we didn't we didn't go to jail or anything, but and it kind of worked. You know, where and then I remember like <laughs> the big thing in the the big thing in the eighties oh. was. And we were teenagers, and obviously there was no internet, no mobile phones, right? So the big thing, though, was teenagers still wanted to talk to their friends all the time. And the big thing was to convince your parents to get you a second phone line. You know? uh, So my parents had actually done that for my sister because she also liked to be on the phone all the time. And it get annoying to the parents, right? Where, like, back then, again, there wasn't even voicemail, right? So if your phone was always busy, it was a problem. So they got my sister a second phone line. And then I co-opted that. I put like a tape voice message machine on it. And that was like, it was just a recording. Hey, thank you for calling Ultimate Core Care, Car Care. Please let us know when and where you'd like us to pick up your car. And in the evening, I'd come home, you know, just kind of play the voicemails and just told my sister not to call her friends anymore. But, uh, <laughs> but that was how we how we got started. And it was a, a fun little business, you know, and we every weekend we'd detail a few cars and, and make some decent money. I think we were only charging like 20 or 40 bucks. So we way undercut the professional ones. Wow. You know, but yeah. for us, it was still, Hey, if we could make 40 bucks detailing a car as a teenager, that was a lot of money. Yeah. Well, well done. You never know when these sparks of entrepreneurship are going to, to, to come up. Um, 
and I often think about this with, you know, with founders of who were your early role models that, or, or did you see somebody on TV, someone in your house, who are the people? And I think your dad, well, maybe it was an entrepreneur. What, um, what inspired you to kind of get in this entrepreneurship world so early? Yeah, I think it was my dad. And actually, same thing with my friend Joe's dad. His dad was an entrepreneur too. Mm-hmm. And my dad was an entrepreneur, but building a very different business. My dad was building a pump manufacturing company. Okay. Which actually my grandfather had started in Germany like way back after World War II. Wow. And uh, actually, I often think back to my grandfather's inspiration because he started his, his company in 1947. And uh, he was living in Northwest Germany in Essen, which was a very industrial town. So frankly, it had kind of gotten flattened during the war. And uh, luckily for him, he was working the, the waterworks in Düsseldorf during the war, keeping the water supply running. And he was a very hands-on engineer. And he, after the war, he honestly didn't know what to do. You know, he didn't have a job, didn't have any money, but he was a very hands-on engineer. He just came up with a better pump design to mm-hmm. pump slurries out of the coal mines in the Ruhr Valley. And uh, wow, then he okay. just... And they didn't have any manufacturing, but his brother was like the sales guy. So they'd sell a pump, they'd outsource all the manufacturing and then sort of one pump at a time. They, uh, you know, over decades built a business. And uh, then my father had taken it over and he was also very much an entrepreneur. And the reason we wound up in the U.S., I mentioned that, you know, I started going to school, the Waldorf School in Germany, but we wound up in Pittsburgh because my father decided he wanted to bring his pumps to the U.S. market. And he was trying to do it remotely. That wasn't working. He's like, great, I'll just move the family. And he chose Pittsburgh, you know, Pennsylvania. I think his rationale was it was within 500 miles of two thirds of the U.S. population, you know, especially at that time ah. between Chicago and New York. Okay. And, yeah. So, and oh. there was a German community there. So, uh, you know, he moved us there. So, I very much grew up, you know, kind of evenings, weekends, talking to my dad about work. I'd often go into the, uh, you know, uh, the business with him. And in the summer, I remember he would send me to Germany to work in the pump manufacturing plant. And uh, so I just grew up around it. And I did. I think a vacation. A, yes. <laughs> and, uh, but I think as a kid, I just, you know, I, I also somewhat idolized my dad. And I do remember that as a kid also finding it intimidating. You know, because I'm like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, going to go to work with my dad. And it seemed so huge. And, you know, in fact, it wasn't that huge company, but it was 100 people. But to me, it seemed giant. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think I could ever, like, if some part of me wanted to be like my dad or even bigger than my dad. But it also felt intimidating where I'm like, I don't think I could ever be as big as my dad. You know, I don't think I could ever do this. But it definitely inspired me to to want to be like him and you know, and, and build a company. So thinking about your your children today and teaching them about business, how, how do you approach that? Um, and and honestly, I I try to not kind of impose it on them. Um you know, but when they ask me questions, when they're curious about it, I will, I will definitely answer it, but I want them to you know, find their own way, have their own energy. Um, although I have to admit, like I'm joking with my daughter, she, she's been inspired. She wants to be a doctor and she's now 16 years old, but I think one of her friends, moms, like was a doctor. And if about four or five years ago, she was at their house and she came home and said, Oh, I want to be a doctor. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm that's a great ambition. So my wife and I have encouraged it. But now sometimes I'll say, oh, don't, don't you want to be a biotech engineer after med school? So, <laughs> so much more upside. <laughs> yeah. And she's well, like, no, dad, I just want to be a doctor. But who knows? You know, maybe maybe someday. <laughs> we, uh, I've tried to be a, an intentional with my daughter, talking to her about business, 
letting her in behind. I think I think there's a tendency for some, and it doesn't sound like it was like this for your family, but to separate family from work mm. and not have the work people know the family people and just kind of keep it all separate and compartmentalize. Mm. But like with your dad sending you to Germany, taking you to work, I mean, he let them come together and it sounds like it really inspired you. And so I'm I'm always sort of thinking about ways. I haven't really figured out everything yet on this, but finding ways to at least talk about it, not impose it, but talk about it. So she at least grows up with the mindset of business is accessible to me. I can create a business. I can do it uh, if I want to do it. Yeah, no, I think that's, and, and Ben, I, I do think, and I do try to make it integrated, you know, mm-hmm. sort of talk about it at dinner. And I've had leadership offsites at my house, you know, I had my leadership yeah. team come here for dinner, which is great wow. to get to each other. But I also then introduce them to my kids, you know, so I, I do try to expose them in more natural ways. And lately, what's been kind of cool, like I've gotten to speak about entrepreneurship. So recently, also, I did a talk at the University of Colorado here in one of their entrepreneurship classes, and I just oh. invited the kids to come. Oh, and, uh, yes. They get to they see you on the stage. It. Yeah. And they, but also, and there, I was also, you know, telling a bunch of business students at the University of Colorado, just my stories as entrepreneurs. You know, and I think the professors like that to also expose them because studying business, it's like studying anything, right? If it's just dry textbooks, it's kind of boring. You know, but expose them to some real stories of company building, entrepreneurship, and yeah. But then inviting my kids to come along is wonderful. And actually, what I've you know been pleasantly surprised by they're they're kind of can be surly teenagers at times, but they're all like, "Dad, that was actually pretty cool." You know, nice. yes. Now I know more about what you do. So uh, yeah, so I, I, well, I do try to expose them to it without trying to impose it. Yes, know? and I, I think that's a very Jedi. That's a Jedi approach because they see college kids paying attention. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, my dad has something to say, and people care about it. Yeah, like he's not just an annoying dad, right? Like yeah, he, so he you can tell actually, them the same lessons in your household at dinner, or you can do it in front of another student body and see them do that, and it's yeah. a much bigger impact. Making a note there, uh, a good art. So, man, starting to wind this up. It, I've got a lot more questions. We don't have a lot more time for this, so I'm just kind of sort of boil it down here. Um, what's What's your favorite entrepreneur leader lesson to share? And I think my own would be shifting to consciousness, shifting to vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I do wish, and as I shared earlier, it took me about eight years to get there. Yeah, you know, to also use entrepreneurship as a way to become more mindful, take better care of myself. And I, I do think those eight years were so much anxiety fear. And honestly, like while I enjoyed some moments in my life, overall, I was kind of miserable. So I wish I'd gotten to that shift, you know, to more conscious, mindful leadership sooner. Um, and so that would also yeah. be why I love sharing this. Cause I do hope. And, and like I said, I have so many entrepreneur friends and I also always feel natural connection with entrepreneurs because, you know, we've all had this common experience, which oftentimes is daunting. And so if I can help inspire more entrepreneurs, to shift to more conscious, mindful company building sooner. I could, that would, that would make me really happy. Well, you're doing it through this, through this interview here. Well, I've got a bonus question for you. Okay. Anybody that watches that documentary, they're going to see you working out like a, like a champ, like you're, mm-hmm. like you're training for the ring or something. 
Uh, and, and I was like, man, I got to ask him about this. What is your workout regimen, and how to, and and how important is it for your for your functioning and, and high level leadership? Yeah, and I think it is one of the things I've learned. It is very important to me, and I do work out literally every day of the year because I do find it's one of the methods in terms of relieving my own anxiety and mm-hmm. even just kind of prioritizing self care. So I do work out, you know, at least thirty to sixty minutes every day. And because uh, I have found it just, you know, relieves a lot of my work and mental anxiety and, and just puts me in a better place. So I do prioritize it. I even have my assistant schedule it now okay. and one of what I call kind of a peak activity. And, uh, you know, on some days also I enjoy going outdoors. It could be a hike, or it could be a trail run. Mm. Some days I just grind on the Peloton. Um, but, you know, but stimulating my body every day is, is important to me. And I think it puts me in a better, better mental, physical, spiritual place. Well, good. Art. Thank you for coming on the show today. And we, I mean, you've loaded it up. I mean, working out mindfulness, conscious leadership, some great stories and uh, looking forward to sharing it with our audience. Yeah. Ben, thanks so much. Really fun conversation and uh, appreciate you sharing the story. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.